I've always had an affinity for my fellow Hannibalian, Samuel Langhorne Clemens, better known to most by his pen name, Mark Twain. Born in 1835, a year in which Halley's Comet passed through the night sky, Twain traveled near and far over the face of the earth for the intervening 75 years until the comet returned again in 1910, and he let slip these earthly bounds and followed Halley's into the universe. After spending his formative years during the antebellum period in northeast Missouri, he first worked towards getting his pilot's license on steamboats on the Mississippi River. Then after a brief stint with a Confederate Rangers militia group, he deserted and headed west to the silver mining country of Nevada. Later in life, he was very embarrassed about his involvement with the defense of slavery, and that shame inspired him to write perhaps the greatest American novel, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. But before that, after leaving Nevada, he headed to San Francisco. In 1865, as a reporter with the Sacramento Union, he sailed to the Sandwich Islands, which we today know as the Hawaiian Islands. In 1867, as a journalist, he traveled to the Mediterranean, Northern Africa, the Middle East, and Europe. Upon returning to the United States, he married the love of his life, Olivia Langdon, and they lived in New York State and Connecticut for the next three decades. Over that time, he wrote his great works, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, The Prince and the Pauper, Life on the Mississippi, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, and his seminal work, Huckleberry Finn. The 1890s brought on financial issues for Twain, and to cover his debt expenses, even though his health was not the best, he traveled to Europe on a lecture circuit. While in London in 1897, rumors began to circulate in New York that he had died. Frank Marshall White, the European correspondent for the New York Journal, learned of these rumors by a telegraph from his editor who asked White to confirm if it was true. White had heard uh, no such thing in London, but to placate his editor, he found out where Twain was staying, sent him a message by courier inquiring about the author's health. Twain, in only a way that Mark Twain could have responded, wrote back to White, I can understand perfectly how the report of my illness got about. I've even heard on good authority that I was dead. A cousin of mine was ill in London two or three weeks ago, but he is well now, and the reports of my illness came out of his illness, and the report of my death was an exaggeration. This is episode 24. Welcome to the Brews Traveler, exploring the craft beer scene across North America, one craft brewery at a time. And now here's your host, the man who gets more MPP, that's miles per pint, than anybody, Alan Tatman. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brews Traveler. How are you doing? Uh, as you can tell by the sound of my voice, I've been better. Also, another thing, you may hear some... Uh, motor noises in the background. My neighbor is running a generator. I have no idea why, but he is. He's running a generator and I can't do anything about that. So you might hear it from time to time when it kicks on. Uh, some of you know me personally or where I have chronic issues with sinus and bronchial infections and inflammation and from time to time, and it's usually worse than the winter. Um, 
guess what? Winter has come early to mid-Missouri. The damp and chill here along with uh, the Missouri River have exacerbated that head cold, that pesky head cold that I brought back from Ireland. And this past weekend uh, was no fun as it had taken a turn and not for the better. Um, I had friends come in from out of town. Matter of fact, it was Tony Rehagen. And uh, we visited for a very short amount of time and then a very short amount of time. And I had to give it a rain check and I retired early. Without going into all of the details, uh, let's just say I haven't felt good at all this uh, last week. And the time that I would normally have been producing the podcast, I spent it in bed. Uh, I was able to binge watch The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix. And if you like the horror genre, as I do, especially good ghost stories, uh, you might want to check that out. That's an unpaid, uh, unsolicited uh, promotion there. I've been advised by Dr. Carr that I should take it easy, and I have been commanded by the boss, that is Mary Lee, that I am not to plan any trips to breweries until this all clears up. I've also been advised by both of them not to drink until the antibiotics and anti-inflammatories have done all of their work. I'm hoping I'll be well by Thanksgiving if I take care of myself and uh, not come off the DL too early. Uh, that's usually my problem. I get to feeling good, and I think, oh, I'm great, I'm on the mend, and then I'm not. So, anyway. I'm staying here at home, and I was not quite sure what I was going to do with the podcast this week, and then it dawned on me yesterday. Uh, I remembered one of the things that inspired me to start The Bruce Traveler. Um, An episode from my old podcast history, the story of alcohol. I think I've mentioned it a few times. It's kind of a irreverent look at uh, the roles that alcohol has played in history, stuff like that. Anyway, I did an episode titled One Man's Dream. It was a look at the genesis of the craft beer movement in the United States and specifically a thumbnail sketch of Fritz Maytag uh, of Anchor Brewing Company of San Francisco. I also, in that episode, had a telephone interview with uh, Jeff Schrag of Mother's Brewing Company. That was the first interview I had done on that podcast. And it was after that episode that the seed was planted for the Bruce Traveler. And I began taking the steps to get uh, this project started about a month after I uh, released this episode. This was recorded over Labor Day weekend of 2017. It was released on September 6th of that year. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll have a couple of brief comments on the other side. Here you go. To be the first. The first at something that was done that made a difference. History is full of these incidents, the first time something was achieved or invented. We've learned them all in school. Columbus discovered the New World in 1492. Ferdinand Magellan circumnavigated the Earth by ship between 1519 and 1522. Jamestown was the first English settlement in the New World in 1607. Charles Lindbergh was the first to fly an airplane nonstop from North America to Europe in 1927. And Jackie Robinson was the first African-American to play Major League Baseball in 1947. This list goes on and on and on. But many famous firsts that we were all taught as children in school 
Well, they're sort of inaccurate. Okay, about Columbus. Archaeological evidence proves that Norse explorers, probably led by Leif Erikson, had established a settlement at laonce en meadow in Newfoundland in the 11th century. And the saga of that adventure was recorded, except most of Europe either ignored this fact or thought the Vikings had made it all up. And that's not even to mention the indigenous people that discovered America more than 10,000 years ago. Magellan, he couldn't have been the first to circumnavigate the globe because he was killed by natives in the Philippines. His expedition, or what was left of it, there were only 18 members out of 237 that started. It was led by Juan Sebastian Elcano. They returned to Spain after almost a three-year voyage. But nobody knows who Elcano is. Regarding Jamestown in 1576, Martin Frobisher of the English Muscovy Company He established a colony on Baffin Island in what is today northern Canada. And in 1585, Sir Walter Raleigh established the Roanoke Colony in what is today North Carolina. Now true, these colonies didn't last. In both cases, the settlers left behind to maintain the colonies. They mysteriously disappeared into the wilderness, some speculating that they were either adopted or abducted by the indigenous people of the regions. Lindbergh, he wasn't the first to cross the Atlantic. He was just the first person to do it as a solo pilot. In 1919, British aviators John Alcock and Arthur Brown piloted the first transatlantic flight from Newfoundland to Ireland, eight years before Lindbergh. But nobody remembers Alcock and Brown. And I don't want to take anything away from Jackie Robinson. He truly was a pioneer. He faced great diversity, and he did it bravely. But two African-Americans played Major League Baseball before him. The first was a former slave, William Edward White, and he played in one game for the Providence Grays of the National League in 1879. And in 1884, Moses Fleetwood Walker played 42 games for the Toledo Blue Stockings, of the American Association. Now, the history of alcohol has a lot of beginnings, too, but as we have explored in previous episodes, the genesis of a particular time or place or person who is responsible for brewing the first beer, distilling the first whiskey, or cultivating the first vineyard is impossible to ascertain. In the case of beer and wine, of course, it was before the written word and therefore prehistoric. But there is one trend, a recent trend, which we have not yet lost to time. The beginning of the craft beer revolution in the United States. And this story, it begins in San Francisco about 50 years ago with a bankrupted brewery and the heir to a washing machine dynasty. I'm Alan Tapman, and because no good story ever began with... This one time we were eating a salad. This is history, the story of alcohol. Cheers. All right. Mm. If you're 40 years old or younger, you wouldn't have started drinking until the mid to late 1990s at least. And you may not remember a time when there were no craft beers. 
Talking about the dark ages, there were no pale ales, there were no IPAs, no unfiltered wheats, no Kolsch, no brown ales, no coffee stouts. We had two kinds of beer, American beer and imports. And imports were too expensive to drink on a regular basis, so we had American beer. Just beer. Of course, there were different breweries that made different brands. Miller, Pabst, Bush, Budweiser, Coors, Stag, Falstaff, Schlitz, Strohs, Olympia, Hams. We had Milwaukee's Best, which wasn't. We had Old Milwaukee, and we had Meisterbrow, which we affectionately called Mr. Beer. We had Old Style, and one of my favorites was Wiedemann's Fine Beer. It said so right there on the can. $1.59 a six-pack at the General Store in Hannibal, Missouri. There was Rhinelander, which was ridiculously cheap. It came in long neck bottles and was less than $10 a case. And of course, you had to pay a deposit of five cents on every bottle, and that was when I was in grad school in Columbia. And we had premium beers like Michelob, which really didn't taste that much better for the increased price than the other beers. And when I lived in Texas, we had Lone Star and Pearl. And we had malt liquor, which was 8% alcohol, almost twice as much as regular beer. There was Colt 45, Schlitz Malt Liquor Bull, Mickey's Big Mouth, Green Grenades, Country Club, Old English 800, the Little Little King's Cream Ales, which sound a lot better than they were. There were a lot of different beers to drink, but they were basically the same. Same in flavor, same in profile. American style, light lagers, and malt liquors. And then light beer came along in the late 70s and early 80s, which were just like beer. And then we had ice beers. There was a fad in the late 80s and early 90s. Again, more of the same. It was just beer. We didn't know any different. But at the time, now looking back, we were in beer hell. I began drinking a lot of imports after finishing graduate school. I was making a little more money at the time, and I could afford them. I had developed a taste for ales, especially British and Scottish varieties. And of course, I kept bottles of Guinness Extra Stout in the fridge. But I remember the first time that I realized there was this thing called craft brewing. I was living in Dallas, and it was 1990, and I traveled up to Kansas City to visit some friends. And it was at a bar called Charlie Hooper's in the neighborhood of Brookside, where I had my first Boulevard beer, a pale ale, and it was wonderful. It was rich, malty, the right amount of hops to balance it out. It was delicious. This, I thought, we ought to have this all the time. And from that point on, I began to seek out craft beers and craft breweries wherever I traveled across the country. And I wasn't the only person doing this. All over the United States in the late 80s and early 90s, craft brewing took off. And one of the things that ushered in the growth of craft breweries was, after years and years of lobbying by Home Brewers Association, finally in 1978, the federal government lifted the ban on home brewing that had been in place for nearly 60 years since the beginning of Prohibition. These home brewers, they began to experiment and try to make all kinds of beers, many styles which had not been seen in the United States since before the Volstead Act. And they were inspired and helped along by a seminal book on the subject, The Joy of Home Brewing by Charlie Papazian. 
published in 1983, and then the revised second edition in 1991, even made it onto the New York Times bestseller list. Thus, the 1990s saw an explosion of craft brewing in homes. Now, a number of these home brewers begin to say, hey, if we can make really good, flavorful beer and ales like these in small quantities at home, why can't we do this on a little bit larger scale? Open miniature breweries and share it with the world. And thus, through the 1990s, craft beer and craft brewing really took off. The Brewers Association, which represents small and independent craft breweries in the United States, they define breweries in four categories. First, large breweries, which produce more than 6 million barrels of beer each year and have a national distribution network. And we all know these guys, Budweiser, Coors, Miller, and the like. Regional breweries, which produce between 15,000 and 6 million barrels of beer per annum. Microbreweries produce less than 15,000 barrels of beer a year, and they sell less than 25% of their product on their site. Whereas brew pubs, they don't have any set production numbers to meet a category, except they must sell more than 25% of their product on the site. Now, according to the Brewers Association, in 1994, there were 537 craft breweries in the United States, with a breakdown of 19 regional breweries, 192 microbreweries, and 329 brew pubs. Now, by 2000, that's six years later, the number of regional breweries had doubled, almost doubled, with 36. Microbreweries had more than doubled, with a total of 405. And brew pub numbers had tripled to 1,509. Now, over the next decade, by 2010, the numbers for regional and microbreweries continued to grow, with 81 and 620, respectively, while brew pub numbers held steady, decreasing just a bit to 1,053. But the next six years saw the greatest explosion to date. By the end of 2016, there were 186 regional breweries, 3,132 microbreweries, that's a growth of nearly 200% in six short years, 1,916 brew pubs nationwide for a total of 5,234 craft breweries in America, a growth of tenfold in less than 25 years. Now, you might think that the market is becoming saturated, but it doesn't appear as such. Craft breweries account for only 10% of the total market by dollar amount and only 8% of the market by volume. That means there's still 90 and 92% respectively of the market to be had. And every year, more and more of that market moves in to the craft brew direction. Some other things contributed to the rise in craft beer in the market, mainly the reticence on the part of the large national breweries to recognize that the market trends were moving toward craft beer and import consumption in the 1990s 
and the early 2000s. And when they finally did realize they were losing market share to this, rather than making an investment and moving into that segment where the market was growing, they doubled down on advertising, telling existing and new customers how cool their beer was or how their beer was an American tradition or either go big or go home. Macro is better than micro. You know the uh -oh. ads. You know what I'm talking about. And they're still running this. He said a bad word. Today, they're, they're, they're never going to stop. They're doubling down on that. Now, don't get me wrong. I appreciate what these big breweries do. They have a good product for some of the market, people that don't like beer. They think they like beer, but they don't like beer. But these big breweries, now there's a couple of them, and I, I, I will say this. There are some of them that are buying microbreweries, and they're continuing the microbreweries in their towns where they were. One example of this, which I'm very fond of, is Miller Brewing bought Leinenkugels in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. The Leinenkugel family is still involved with that brewery, and they're still producing there in Chippewa Falls as they have since 1867. And that's a case where a big brewery came in, and they saw a product that had a place in the market, and they invested in it, and they invested in that community. But others have gone in, and the one specifically that I'm thinking about is that Anheuser-Busch bought Rolling Rock out of Latrobe, Pennsylvania. They closed the brewery down there, and they started production in St. Louis of Rolling Rock beer. If you now look on a bottle of Rolling Rock, it says Rolling Rock beer, St. Louis, Missouri. Ultimately, the big brewery's refusal to move into the craft beer market, it cost them customers. And that was the way things were trending with consumers and a loss of consumer share contributed to their weakening in the markets and making them ripe for takeovers and consolidation by multinational conglomerates. But that's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about craft brewing and where did it begin? Have you ever wondered that? Oh, I did. Yes, the 1980s and 1990s they, and the new millennia, the early 2000s, they saw this outstanding growth in craft brew market, but it started long before that. And I guess you could say that the story really began on August 2nd of 1965, years before the words craft brew, microbrew, and brew pub had ever been thought of. When the heir to a fortune was eating dinner at the old spaghetti factory in San Francisco. And while he was there eating his dinner at the bar, the bartender mentioned to the washing machine air that the old anchor brewery was closing down and he might want to take a tour of it before it was gone. Anchor Brewing Company of San Francisco was originally founded under the name American Brewery in 1871 by a German immigrant named Gottlieb Breckel. Now Breckel, like many other German brewers, as we talked over in the last few weeks, he used lager yeast, but there was one issue with that in California. They had nowhere to lager the beer. That is, to hold the beer in an environment of 55 degrees or lower for three months while the lagering fermentation process completed. So, in the days before modern refrigeration along coastal California, 
lagering was an impossibility. See, unlike the German lager breweries in the Midwest, like in St. Louis, Milwaukee, Cincinnati, and other places, Chicago, Minneapolis, St. Paul, who had a ready supply of river ice from the winter, they would cut it out of the rivers and lakes, and then they'd store it in ice houses and caverns where they could hold the temperatures at a constant level conducive to the lager fermentation process. There were no nearby sources of ice for these brewers in the Golden State. But never fear, German ingenuity took over. They simply used lager yeast at ale temperatures and thus created a unique brew, what is today called steam beer, or also California common beer. Why it's called steam beer is really not certain. There's some apocryphal explanations, and we all know what that means, apocryphal. Uh, some say the hot wort was cooled off on the roof of the brewery in shallow beer tons, and when the cool air off of San Francisco Bay came in contact with the warm liquid, it would create steam. Another origin of the name comes from the German style of ale called Dampfbier, which literally translates to steam beer, called such because it was fermented at higher temperatures, and as a byproduct of this fermentation process, it created more foam than the brewing of other ales and lagers. And I can attest this is true. I used to make steam beer. Uh, I used lager yeast, and I would use caramel malts when I was a home brewer. This was before I bought the pub. I can attest you make steam beer. Lager yeast goes into hyperdrive when it's fermenting at temperatures above 65 degrees. Now, regardless of why it's called steam beer... It was the commonly brewed beer in California during the last half of the 19th century, until refrigeration came along, but Anchor Brewing continued to make steam beer rather than invest in a large-scale lagering system. And another thing that they did differently than other German breweries was they used 100% malted barley in their process, and some of the barley they roasted so the beer had a dark amber hue not golden like the lagers back east, which were the trend of the day. Now, we all know of Anchor Steam beer today, or you should if you're a beer drinker of any consequence. That is because of the man who was dining that night at the old spaghetti factory back in 1965, and his name was Fritz Maytag. And time for another one. Now, before Maytag came along, Anchor was just a struggling local brewery in San Francisco. And with the advertising of the big national breweries eating up more and more of the market, by 1965, Anchor was done. It couldn't compete until Fritz Maytag saved it. Fritz Louis Maytag III was the grandson of the founder of the Maytag Appliance Company, and the son of the founder of Maytag Dairies, the creator of Maytag Blue Cheese, the first French Roquefort-style cheese to be produced in the United States. But Fritz was a long way down the line to inherit any positions with either of those two companies. He went to Stanford and got a degree in American literature, which is what brought him to the San Francisco Bay Area. Now, Fritz, he wore tweed jackets, wire-rimmed glasses, and button-down shirts. With really little or no need to go into business, he had plenty of money to live off of just from the interest off of the trust funds that had been set up for him by his family. But 
he did like beer. And Fritz liked good beer. He liked Anchor Steam beer. And that night, after the bartender told him that the brewery was closing down, he made a phone call, and he went down to the old brewery. He met the brewmaster, and he sat with them, him in the tap room, and they talked about Anchor Brewing. And Fritz fell in love with it. The next day, he bought in at 51% of the shares of the struggling company with the hopes of turning it around. Financially, of course, the brewery was a disaster. They were basically willing to sell controlling interest for just a few thousand dollars, hoping that somebody would take the responsibility off of their shoulders. Maytag initially thought he would step in and offer some financial support and maybe some advice, but quickly found out his initial investment would be just the beginning. As creditors began to come out of the woodwork with IOUs that had been accumulated over many, many struggling years. The first immediate problem he faced was that the power was going to be turned off the very next day. And then he found out that the kegs that the brewery leased to deliver their beer to the local bars had to be returned to the company where they were leased from by the end of that week. The operation was in desperate financial condition. But being a tiny little company, the total debts were not staggering, especially for an heir to the Maytag fortune, and Fritz just paid them all off. And while Anchor Brewing did have debt, it did not have a lot of payroll expenses. It only had one employee, the brewmaster, and he didn't do much. They were only producing 600 barrels of beer each year and only had enough equipment in the brewery to brew one batch of beer at a time. Now, this lack of production, this gave Fritz plenty of time to study about his new venture. The first thing that he realized that needed to be done was he had to build up interest in the brand and they needed to sell more beer, but to sell more beer, you have to brew more beer. Slowly, Fritz built up the business, keeping his head down, involved in every facet of the brewing and marketing. He was a hands-on entrepreneur and he had a passion for his product. It'd be 10 years before the brewery returned to profit. During that time, Maytag said he was delighted to be flying under the radar and the fact that for many years, Anchor Brewing would register 0.0 in the California Brewery Sales Report. I thought this was fantastic because it gave us cover. We were anonymous. Meanwhile, we were planning a revolution, Maytag once said. He did have a plan. If he liked this kind of beer, then surely there were others who would as well. But how many was the uncertainty? It was a marvelous feeling, he said in an interview many years later. And one day, sure enough, I looked at the California brewery reports, and we were 0.1 in the market. And I thought, uh-oh. Maytag bought out the other owners and assumed full ownership of the brewery in 1969. In 1971, he began bottling Anchor Steam beer. Prior to that, the beer had only been locally available in kegs. Now, he was able to sell bottles of the Amber Brew across the country. Also among his many innovations was creating a portfolio with diverse styles of beer, the first being Anchor Porter, introduced in 1972. It was the first porter brewed by any American brewer after Prohibition, and at the time, it was the only dark beer being brewed 
in the United States. In 1975, Anchor introduced another beer that became a precursor to the current craft beer boom, Liberty Ale. Considered by many to be the first India Pale Ale, it had a hop-forward profile that was well ahead of its time. Maytag would say they were trying to make a beer that most people wouldn't like. He had to explain to beer distributors that they're not going to sell very much. That was the whole idea, he said. You just had to sell a little bit everywhere. Liberty Ale was followed in 1975 by another innovation that would become a craft beer business staple, the seasonal release. Nobody had done it ever before. Maytag came out with Anchor Christmas Ale. Now seasonal releases are a major driver of the business for craft breweries. Anchor Christmas Ale was a novelty when it was first released. Back then, just like now, the seasonal approach proved to be a challenge for many distributors and retailers faced with the proposition of buying too much or too little product. In each case, they would be upset. First, if they couldn't get any more when they ran out, or if they had too much on January 1st. So from a selling point of view, it was a challenge that the big brewers never had to worry about. But Maytag was a pioneer, and he showed what was possible outside of the big brewery world. Over the course of his 45 years of ownership, Maytag would risk his fortune building the brewery, while at the time navigating the ups and downs of the beer business. At one point, in need of money for expansion, he thought about taking Anchor Brewing public or adding partners. And he came very, very close to becoming the first brewery, first small brewery, to have an IPO. He was on the verge of taking the brewery public when he decided it was time. Time to back away from the business. And he sold the brewery to the Griffin Group in 2010. By then, his energy and enthusiasm for the day-to-day grind of running a brewery was fading. It had been five decades, and the emerging boom in the craft beer segment made him feel like the time was right to step aside. I didn't like being part of a parade, he said. We had been the only craft brewery in the world by our standards for years and years, so it was a strange feeling to be part of a movement instead of a pioneer. I didn't like that. I liked being unique. Just last month, Anchor Brewing Company was purchased by Sapporo Breweries of Japan. Currently, Anchor is the 22nd largest craft brewer in the United States by sales volume, according to figures released by the Brewers Association. It has one production plant in San Francisco and has posted annual sales of about $33 million in 2016. The deal with Sapporo reflects mounting pressure by craft brewers to find deep-pocketed partners as they face an increasingly crowded market. International conglomerates are eager to jump into the U.S. craft beer market. They see it as a growing field and an additional income stream. But don't worry. Everybody's always concerned. Oh, it's owned by not, not American anymore. Wait a minute. We live in a global economy, folks, okay? Don't worry, it's just business, all right? As long as they keep the purchased breweries in place and continue as craft breweries, and that seems to be the trend with most of these 
international conglomerates. Things should be just fine. Fifty years after he became an unlikely brewery owner and inspired a generation of small brewers, Fritz Maytag looks back fondly at the result. We built a tiny, amazing, high-quality brewery slowly and carefully, he said. We created a revolution in beer, and we had a wonderful time doing it. It was by the example of Fritz Maytag that many of the great craft breweries in this country realized, yes, we can do this. Many more followed their example. And I've got a treat for you this week. I interviewed just such an entrepreneur who had a passion for beer. And yesterday, I called him up. My friend, Jeff Schrag, founder of Mother's Brewing Company of Springfield, Missouri. We talked for a few minutes about Mother's Brewing and beers. And here's the conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Jeff, how's your Labor Day going? I'm having a really good day, Alan. It's good to talk to you. <laughs> well, thank you. We uh, we had a chance to talk to each other on Saturday. Jeff and some of his uh, friends and acquaintances, they came up to see the Missouri State University football game against the Mizzou Tigers. And uh, d- despite the despite losing the game, I thought MSU gave the Tigers a real run for their money. I was really pleased with the effort. Yeah, it, it, I thought they played exceptionally well. but uh, And it was nice to have some folks uh, from down your way come up and see our our little pub here in Jeff City. And so thanks for everybody coming by. We really appreciate it. Well, you're welcome, Alan. It's one of my favorite spots to go. Now, we were introduced to Mothers through our good friends over at Fectal Distributing. And I want to ask you, how did you become a brewer? When, where? Tell us how this all came about, because brewing is not your background, or even the beer business, is it? You're exactly right, Alan. I'm a serial entrepreneur, and for me, I've always had this idea about being an alcohol at some point. Um, I had a fantasy in college about trying to get a loan or deal to do a wheat beer from the Kansas Wheat Commission, which didn't go anywhere. I had an idea about distilling, wine. So it's always been something in the back of my mind as I pursued other things. And about 2008 or so, I decided I have one more business in me. You know, what do I want to do when I grow up? And stumbled upon an article about craft beer, which kind of revived my thinking about doing something in alcohol. And the day after Thanksgiving 2008, I started the journey. And turns out the industry fits me even better than I thought it would. And so for me, it was this notion that in downtown Springfield, Missouri, I could brew as good a beer as anybody anywhere, didn't need special climate, didn't need special soil, that I could do anything from downtown Springfield. So that's kind of the genesis of uh, my journey into craft beer. Let me ask you this. Uh, Do you remember when you first realized, now you're you're probably a bit younger than me. We're, We're close to the same generation, though. Do you remember the first time you realized that there were other types of beer other than light American lagers? Absolutely. And typically it was going out with somebody for St. Patrick's Day and drinking Guinness. And thinking, man, there's a lot going on in this beer. This is this is a pretty big beer. So that would have been my my first foray. Well, I have to I have to tip my hat when Springfield Brewing Company opened a brew pub in Springfield in about '97. 
I remember I, I joined the mug club. I went pretty regularly. And I remember very vividly, you'll, you might enjoy this story. It would have been March or April. They'd been open maybe three or four months. And I was sitting at the bar and the bartender said to me, we have a new beer on tap. It's a Hefeweizen. And then she said, we brewed it this morning. And I said, oh, I'd like to try one. Now, I think what she meant was, you know, they kegged it they or kegged put it, it in, the, right. in the vessel this morning. Mm-hmm. But I remember tasting that half of ice and thinking, holy smokes, there is a lot going on in this beer. Right. I get banana. Where is this banana coming from? Yeah. And that's a, a memory that has stuck with me some 20 years later. 2008 now. You're almost your, your 10th anniversary is coming up. Your 9th anniversary will be this year. 10th anniversary is coming up. How many people were... When you started, how many people did you have working for you? So there were four of us, five counting me, from the very beginning. And those folks were on payroll for almost a year, for sure nine months, uh, before we started brewing. And then we added about three other people pretty quickly once we got going. So uh, by the time we started, there were about eight folks. And so, and today, nine years later... Yeah, 22 folks. So I so I, I had the dream in, in 2008. We didn't actually start brewing until 2011. Oh, okay. So it's been it's been six years for okay. us. Okay. Now, and how many how many barrels do you produce annually now? We we'll a little bit more than 9,000 this okay. year. Okay. And our first year we did right at 1,200. Where are you distributing to? What states, locales are you distributing uh, Mother's Beer? Yeah, uh, portions of, of three states. So we're in all of southern Missouri, everything south of I-70, uh, except St. Louis. We don't sell any beer in the St. Louis metropolitan area. We go north of I-70, north of Columbia, and then we include the whole KC metro, including the Kansas counties of Kansas City, over to Lawrence, Kansas. Arkansas is our most complete state. Uh, we serve every wet county in Arkansas except two. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> that's, uh, I talked about the dry and wet counties uh, a few episodes back and the crazy liquor laws that there, we have across the country, and Arkansas has some doozies. <laughs> anyway. But, you are right. But for, you know, you're, you're a small regional brewery. Right? Would, you, would you even call yourself a regional brewery? I, I wouldn't. Certainly, we're geographically no. regional, okay. but uh, in, in craft beer, regional is actually a technical term, uh-huh. which means more than fifteen thousand barrels a year. Oh, okay, okay. So we're n- we don't hit that definition under the Brewers Association. Well, under Brewers Association, we talked a little bit about them on Saturday. Uh, what 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 are you? What is Mother's technically referred to as? A microbrewery. A microbrewery. Okay. Now, mm-hmm. for a microbrewery, you have got an amazingly diverse portfolio of beers uh, you know Thank for you. for a small intimate brewery and by the way folks if you want to take a tour of the brewery uh, contact them you can find their I'll, uh, I'll have a, a link to their website you can go down to Springfield and it's great they have a tasting room anyway but year rounds you have seven is that right yeah that's right four seasonals including winter grind it's, I think, one of the best coffee stouts ever made. It's, it's Thank delicious. You. Yeah, you got three. You have three big bold ales: an imperial stout, imperial coffee stout, and a double IPA. But, and we kind of touched on this Saturday. I think your most interesting line 
are your backyard beers. Uh, tell us, tell us about how back your backyard beers, those four types of beer, how that came about. So we're lucky to be in Missouri and the fact that we can have a tasting room and we can be open to the general public. There's no food requirements in Missouri. So we can just uh, open up and sell whatever we want to to folks. No limit on how much we can sell per person, no limit on uh, the types of servings that we can do. So we've long used our tasting room as a research and development agent, which lots and lots of breweries do, nothing unique to us. And so the Backyard Beer Series came from this notion of these are the most popular beers that we've brewed in our own backyard. We're fortunate to have about a three-acre plot behind the brewery where we hold some outdoor festivals and, and things. And so these are the most popular beers in our backyard, and how do we get those out to people who can't come to our backyard or don't come to our backyard? And so that was the genesis of, of that series. A lot of times these beers are fruit beers, and so they carry a higher cost of goods. And so that's always challenging to figure that out. We've really had no luck, Alan, with uh, any sort of concentrate or any sort of artificial flavorings. They just haven't worked for us. And, and it's funny, sometimes beers are tasting room beers because they're so doggone difficult to make. Right. You know, a guy will stand there or a lady will stand there for a day and they'll peel grapefruit and they won't feel too bad about it and they'll do it for two days. But if you say, hey, your job for the rest of your time here is to do grapefruits every day, you're going to burn people out right. on some of these really tedious processes. Right. So that led itself to let's just do one batch of them a year. Let's pick our most popular ones and ones that we can actually do and afford to do and make them affordable. And so all those things came together in the Backyard Series. Yeah, the tart peach, which we recently, we can't, it's gone for the season, but we had that on draft down at the pub. And I really, I really fell in love with that beer. It's, it, was, it wasn't too, uh, it was tart. It wasn't too sour, and it was refreshing. It was, it was real, and had the peach uh, esters and and aromas. It was just, it was a really nice beer, and I, I'm a fan now. So I'll be looking for that next summer, hopefully. Yeah, thank you. Peaches are always difficult because in in southern Missouri, about every third or fourth year, the peach crop fails. Right. And so this year they had a partial failure, and we used peaches from the boot hill. But we try really hard to source our peaches locally, and anything like that we can source locally, and it works out. It's it's even more fun to do that. So, uh, you've got some events coming up. Your Oktoberfest celebration starts the end of this week, right? It does. It's on Saturday, yeah. which is the ninth, and uh, we try to get our Oktoberfest in and out as quickly as we can. <laughs> we do it about a week before they start over in Germany. And um, I'm looking forward to it. We get, you know, a little bit more than 2,000 folks, 2,500 folks come to the brewery for a, for a good uh, outdoor uh, music festival. You've got a great facility there. I mean, we, um, you know, we did the tour with the history group. Uh-huh. We came down and we thank you for that and the tasting room. you got a great facility. Uh, we'll try to, let's think about doing that again next spring. And uh, That would be fun. Yeah. And uh, oh, one more thing before I let you go, because I know it's this your holiday, and you, I'm sure you have things to do. But if there was something that people don't normally ask or think about Mother's Brewing Company that you'd like to tell them, 
what would that be? So over time, as we've tried to specialize, uh, well, I guess figure what we're good at is a better way to say it. As we've looked at what we're best at, we keep gravitating to hop-forward beers and then flavor-driven beers. Hop-forward is easy. It's any kind of beer where the hop is the star, from a hoppy wheat uh, to a double India pale ale. But we seem to have a real... Uh, knack or affinity, sometimes one, sometimes the other, for beers where the flavor comes from something other than the four traditional ingredients, something other than the water, grain, hops, and yeast. And the Backyard Beer Series kind of really shows that off with peaches or grapefruit or cucumber or or any of those things. Uh, That's turned out to be something that we really enjoy doing and that people seem to gravitate to. Well, it's, it's you know, everybody says, people say things like, well, that doesn't taste like beer. And what they don't realize is that hop-forward beers haven't been around in the 10,000 years of brewing. Hop-forward beers have only been around since about the 15th century, if, if that. You are absolutely right. You know, most beers would be sour, um, they would be sour beers, and then, you know, they used Groot, which was all kinds of herbal stuff that they used in brewing of ales, and that lasted up until the 17th century. So most ales didn't really have a lot of hops in them until that time. But anyway, we could sit here. You know you know me. I love to talk about beer, and I, I'm so glad to call you a friend, and I'm so glad that we have your product on tap at the pub. And, Jeff, thank you very much for taking some time out of your day today to talk to all of our uh, listeners, and we appreciate it very much. Same to you, Alan. You have a great Labor Day. All right. Thanks, you t- to everybody, for listening. Thanks. See you now. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, There it is, guys. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks very much for taking time out of your day to talk to us about Mother's Brewing. And that's it, kids. If you'd like to learn more about Mother's Brewing, I'll have a link to their website on the Facebook page. So until next week, let me leave you with these thoughts. If you've got a dream, follow it. Fritz Maytag did. And so did Jeff Schrag. I did as well. I had a dream of bringing a traditional pub to Jefferson City with good craft beer and imports and good food, even though I was told by one guy in the business, you won't make it in this town selling those funny beers. Well, we're into our 18th year now, and thanks to Great customers, great staff, a great business partnership with our friends Bernie, Sabrina Morgan, and Andy Fechtel of Fechtel Beverage, and Marilee, a wonderful wife, as a business partner. We're doing just fine selling all those funny beers. Even when others say you can't make it, follow your dreams. As Babe Ruth said, never let the fear of striking out get in your way. History Episode 39 was written and produced by me, Alan Tatman. The technical director of history is Brian McGeorge. 
the marketing director of History is Tim. I'm not the bomber, McVeigh. History is a Wild Irish production with all rights reserved. And this week's phrase for you. So as you can see, I really enjoyed doing that episode a lot. And like I said, it kind of got me thinking about what if I really concentrated on craft breweries uh, in a new episode rather than history. And that's really the genesis of the Brews Traveler. It was only a couple of weeks after that I was talking to Jeff again. He was in Jefferson City and in October and I said here's this idea I've had what do you think and he along with our uh, our craft beer um, distributors here in Jefferson City uh, Bernie and Andy Fechtel they also thought it was a great idea and yeah this is something that that you should do and so that's really what started uh, the Bruce Traveler I edited uh, I edited I edited the episode quite a bit. I uh, took out some things that were just kind of rambling on. Anybody that's knew that show, sometimes that would happen. I'd just get on a rant. I edited a lot of that out. I edited, I, of course, I edited out the uh, profanity, and uh, I edited down on content as well. So time-wise, so. But if you want to hear the whole episode, you can check us out. We're at history. We're on iTunes. H-I-S-H-T-O-R-Y. There's a number of episodes over there. I might get back to that show someday. It was a lot of fun to do. It's just I got to a point where I was I had a block, and I didn't know what else to do with it. And uh, I, I hope to get back to it at some point in time. So if you want to check out what's going on at Anchor Brewing Company, I've never been there, but I hope that next uh, summer, uh, Marilee and I will able, be able to go out on the Pacific Coast and check it out. It's at anchorbrewing.com, and of course, a place that I know quite well and I've talked about very, very often, Mother's Brewing in Springfield, Missouri. You can check out everything they've got going over at mothersbrewing.com. You've been listening to The Brews Traveler. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or check out our blog on website, thebrewstraveler.com. Cheers! So that's it, guys. Again, sorry for being under the weather this week. Uh, I hope by the time I talk to you next, uh, it'll I'll be much improved. Uh, please check us out over on Facebook at The Brews Traveler Podcast and on Instagram at The Brews Traveler Podcast. Go over to iTunes, subscribe, give us a five-star rating and a glowing review. The soundtrack to The Brews Traveler is generously provided by our friends Gaelic Storm. Check out what's going on with them at their website, gaelicstorm.com. Marketing consultation provided by Mission Digital Marketing. I won't see you at your favorite tap room this week, or at the pub probably, So, uh, but I'll be back here on the podcast next week. Remember, drink locally, think globally, take care of each other, take care of the earth. It's everything we got. And Merrily, thank you for taking care of me so much. You are the measure of my dreams. And that's it, folks. Thanks again. So long for just a while.
As far as being on the verge of being a sick man, I don't take any stock in that. I have been on the verge of being an angel all of my life, but it's never happened yet. Mark Twain, Samuel Langhorne Clemens Born November 30th, 1835, the village of Florida in Rawls County, Missouri. Died April 21st, 1910, Reading, Connecticut.